Hi, I'm Tiki Barber, co-founder of Thusio. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast. We're bringing our past events back to life for you to enjoy. Former New York Ranger defenseman and 2009 NHL Hall of Fame inductee Brian Leach sat down with sports journalist Julie Stewart-Binks in February of 2020. Leach not only recounts the New York Rangers' legendary Stanley Cup run in 1994, but also how he dealt with a major ankle injury, his opinions on the current Rangers' defensive core, and the thrill of playing at Madison Square Garden. Enjoy the interview. Now, Brian, before we get to you being captain of the Rangers, a lot of things happened before then. Let's start at the beginning. You were drafted in 1986 out of high school. Not long after that, you ended up playing in the Olympics in 1988. As a young kid, that's got to be like having Christmas morning and winning the lottery all at once. What was that like for you? Um, it, was, uh, it was a very... Uh, a lot of things happened in a short amount of time. You know, growing up in Connecticut, I never even dreamed of the NHL and being an NHL player. And it was the 1980 Olympic team when I was with my Connecticut Pee Wee team playing a travel game in Massachusetts. And the game was tape delayed, and the parents had heard what was going on, and they got us all together in the hotel room to actually see the tape delayed what was going on. And so as, you know, 11, 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, we were all excited just to be together in a hotel room. And so whenever the U.S. scored, we'd throw pillows around and jump around on the beds and we're excited. But that was really like the thing. I was like, wow, a college kid can play in the Olympics? So that was always kind of the outside dream. Like we'd play street hockey and it was, oh, maybe you can make the U.S. Olympic team. The NHL was so far removed. So then you start playing high school and you do better. And then someone's like, well, you got a chance to get drafted. And then you're like, drafted? And so that all happens in a short time. In a few months, you get drafted. And I get drafted in the first round, which I was supposed to go down towards the second round. And I was like, wow, I might actually have a chance to make the NHL. So went to college, tried out for the Olympic team. And the next thing you know, you're going from that experience eight months with the travel team for the Olympics to the NHL, and I'm sitting there in Madison Square Garden, my first game, with a Rangers jersey on, and I'm like, what am I doing here? <laughs> uh, honestly, it all went so quick, and it was so amazing that a kid that grew up in Connecticut that never saw it coming is not that far away, 90 miles away from where I grew up, wearing a New York Rangers jersey. So it was one of those would just shake your head progressions in a short amount of time. Yeah, so how did you deal with that? You said you're still such a young kid. You're, you're getting all of these great goals happening at once. How did you sort of deal with it? I just zipped my lips and went where everybody took me and uh, just enjoyed it, you know? Like we had such great like veterans around and people around. Like I lived with Marcel Dion for those of you that are old enough to remember for, th for three months at this house. And um, the next year I came back and Guy Lafleur came out of retirement and was on the team. You know, legendary players that I saw as a kid and they're my housemates, they're my teammates. They're taking me out to lunch. And so I just kept it quiet. I listened to the stories. I enjoyed every minute of it and I watched and learned 
as I went. And hockey was the easy part. When you're on the ice and practicing, that was fun. And the better I did, the better my teammates treated me. So I was like, I'm going to play good. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just fun. Those early years are so influential in your career. And I had a lot of great veterans that uh, I played with. That's got to be so surreal as a young kid. And uh, on that topic, you told me before we sat down here that when you played for the Rangers, at least at the beginning, you guys weren't allowed to live in New York City. No, that's true, because a lot of the guys that played in the 70s and 80s really screwed everything up for the rest of us. <laughs> Ron Duguay and Ron, Gr Ron Greshner and the rest of them were in the paper all the time. So uh, management were like, we're not letting anyone live in the city. But guys still got in plenty of trouble out in <laughs> Long Beach and out in Westchester and everywhere else. But uh, I had young teammates that were being traded like three months after they were called up. And Phil Esposito's our GM, he was known as Trader Phil and made a lot of moves. And so he got fired, or his, our head coach got fired, and then he got fired, and we had no GM and no coach. And I'm like, man, I'm going to get traded soon. i got to see what it's like to live in New York City. <laughs> so I rushed down there, and I bought a place on the Upper West Side, a little one-bedroom. And then they hired Neil Smith, who hired Roger Nielsen. And they tried to, when they found out I was living in the city, they tried to buy me out of my lease. They're like, oh, we'll pay for your rent. I was like, no, I bought a place. And they're like, what? And they're like, oh, we can't buy that. So they made it hard on me. And then, thank goodness, the Messiah came. Mark Messier came. He, he moved right down to 57th Street. and ever then, then that rule was out the window once Mark came in. <laughs> yeah, as you mentioned, you're going to find trouble anywhere. Yeah, you can. Whether it's yep. New York City or New Jersey or wh whatnot. Now, let's get back to On the Ice. Um, the first year that you played in the league, you won the Calder Trophy. You were Rookie of the Year. Just such an incredible season, especially as a young defenseman. How are you able to transition your game from being so dominant at the high school, college level to then being so successful so soon in the NHL? Probably took advantage of the loophole. Like I, we, I came after the uh, Olympic team in, uh, in February. I was able to play 17 games in the NHL, get comfortable with the team, with the trainers, you know, what it was like coming in and out of the city. So when I went into the next year after getting ready for it, I was ready to go. And I knew my place. I knew they expected me to be a certain type of player. And um, Tony Granato made the team that year, who I played in the Olympic team with. He scored 33 or 35 goals that year. And we were kind of all having fun together. They called up Mike Richter towards the end of that year, who was on the Olympic team. And so there was a big comfort level, a lot of good veterans. And, you know, each time I went out there, it was don't let your teammates down. You know, you're in the NHL. Like, you can't let these guys down. That's a lot of pressure, though, as a young kid. Like, what kind of mental toughness did you have to have? Zero. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> I'm telling you, it gets mentally tougher the longer you play and the better you're like here when you, there weren't, a, even though there, quote, was expectations, there really wasn't. You know, it was you're a young player. You're going to make mistakes. And I had good coaches early. They were like, go. We need you to rush the puck. We need you to learn when you make mistakes. So it became later, after you played 8, 9, 10, 11 years, where you had established a certain level of play. And 
off days became more stressful, game days became more stressful because you were like, okay, I gotta, I, I gotta, I gotta perform again mm -hmm. and again and again. Now, speaking of mistakes, your second year, things weren't as smooth. You got out of a cab and you injured your ankle. Is that the weirdest injury you've ever had? I mean, significantly, <laughs> yeah, where it took me out of, uh, yeah, the NHL. I've had a couple other weird injuries that didn't keep me out, but I was like, I can't believe that just happened. But that's a different story. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was, uh, that was disappointing because I had gone... Earlier that year, I'd gone head first into the boards, and I had uh, injured a nerve, and my left side of my body was, you know, it was, the nerve was damaged, so I couldn't raise my arm, and, but I had come back after three months, and I was 80% better in the team. All of a sudden, when I was back, started winning, and so it was one of the first nights out in New York, and we all went out, and a few of the guys went back to Mess's place to sleep over, and we were all going to go to practice, I went back, and... It was those days with the bad shoes and everything. Instead of just walking around to the opening, I tried to take the step between the cars on the snowbank and and did the snap. And I'm like, you'll be kidding me. So I, yeah. it was, I was in complete denial. Limped in, walked upstairs, sat there, and I'm like, laid down. I go, it'll be better when I wake up. So I got up, and I'm like, my ankle still hurts. And I... Got back, I walked downstairs, got in my car, drove, and I had a uh, standard car, so I was doing the clutch and the gas, and I'm like, my ankle is killing me right now. By the time I got to practice, my ankle was just throbbing. So I limped into practice and went to the trainer, and it wasn't that swollen, it was just like a dent on one side. And, uh, and he goes, what happened? I told him what happened. And he goes, all right, we'll put ice on it, we'll treat it. And then he gave me some crutches, sent me off to the uh, doctors. I drove myself to the doctors, crutched my way in. Now it's really hurting. And the doctor comes back, goes, Brian, you got a, another spiral fracture? Because I had had one early in my career. And, uh, and uh, I just started crying right then because I knew going through the other ankle uh, injury that I was out for the rest of the year. This was in March. So I had missed three year, three months in the middle of that with the neck injury and then came back and got the ankle injury. So that was that was a low year for mm -hmm. sure. That was a downtime. It was a low year, but then the following year was an incredible year where you won the Norris Trophy at 102 points, the last defenseman to score 100 points in the NHL. How does anyone who's a defenseman score 100 points in the NHL? Like when you look back... What did it come down to? Well, I've been asked that a lot this year because John Carlson looks like he's going to do it this year. Um, and, you know, I look back and I said that was the year that our coach, Roger Nielsen, played Jeff Bukaboom and I a lot with Mark Messier's line as a fivesome. Most of the time they're moving defensive pairs in and out with the lines. We played together probably 75% of the time as five-on-five -five units. So everyone's watched Mark Messier as a player. You know, he's as good as it comes with identifying who's going to be open, creating plays. So I'd just get up there, and if the forwards weren't open, it'd be on my stick. Adam Graves would be in front of the net on the power play. I'd shoot it. The goalie couldn't see it. It'd go in. If it hit, if it, it, it hit somebody in front, Gravy would knock it in, and I'd get an assist. So 
and I played a lot of minutes. So you need to be healthy, you need to have a good team, and you need to be in all those offensive situations. So, you know, it wasn't because I played any better. It was just the opportunities that you were out there for, and then, you, you know, point-wise, you get advantage of. Otherwise, I would have scored 100 points every year because, <laughs> you know, like if we, were, if we were that good every year and everything was the same, the same results would be there. But the teams change from year to year. Right, and when you have that high, being able to, to have that personal success after having such a low point the year before, when you look back on it, what are some of even like the mental tools that you use to make sure that you didn't have another down year, that you were able to bring yourself up and, and get that personal glory that you wanted? I think it's just a day-to-day, -day, the way you go about your preparation. You know, preparation, I think, is the best thing for anybody in all the lines of business that everybody's in, the more you're prepared, the easier that situation is for you. And even if it goes wrong, you know, like I was prepared for that. So it was being good training in the summer, good practices and taking care of yourself. And then, you know, if your team, like the best thing was having a bad game and your team winning, because mm -hmm. then you'd be like, all right, that was a throwaway. You know, everyone's still happy, I was still happy. But having a bad game when your team loses is gut-wrenching, and you don't want to be in that spot all the time. So it gets, you know, if your team is good and your team's successful and you're prepared, it's not that hard. You just put the work in. The games are your escape. Like, that's where all the work pays off. Now, speaking of preparation and efforts, 1994 Stanley Cup Finals run, an exciting time. I'm sure so many people in this room remember it. Uh, it goes down in history after so many years of waiting. And let's go through some of these playoff series because you, you knock off the Islanders and you get to the Devils and you guys are, you, you had their number all season, but then you're down 3-2 in the series. And you have Messier's guarantee. We all know that Mark Messier guaranteed a win in game six as his teammate. When you heard him say that, what was your initial reaction? Uh, we just laughed when we saw it like, in the paper. And not like a laugh, like, oh, it was a good joke. It was just like, oh, look at like New York. Everything gets built up. So one comment about, I believe we'll win tonight, becomes the guarantee and goes. But he's, everyone knows Mark that's seen him around here. Didn't back away from it one bit, and uh, never did. But um, Adam Graves and I always still talk to this day about Mark throughout his career, that we played with him as a teammate. The biggest moments, even though he was so good in the locker room and he said all the right things there, the fact he did it on the ice every single time, and this was another example, and we still, like, if we were up here with Adam, we'd both look at each other and go, yeah. We don't really have an explanation except the, the great ones are a different step above the next level and the next, like there is a real level that Mark and Wayne and Gordie Howe and Bobby Orr and these guys just are in this small little group of players. And he did it so when we went through that game, you know, we, Mike Richter played so good that first period and into the second, and we got a big goal, and the message was still the same. We believed we could win. We had beaten New Jersey six times during the regular season, and uh, it was just let's go out and win this period. And, you know, Mark was right there with all the big <laughs> goals and finished it off with the empty netter. It's amazing. 
It really is. The, being able to have the hat trick, especially mm -hmm. when you guys were down in that game. Yeah, crazy. So you have a game seven. And for you, Brian, you played a, a big role in this with the first goal of the game. Well, Brian, I'm sure you've watched that goal many times, but what was going through your mind when you decided to do the spinorama? Well, you can see as I go down the boards, I'm going slow and looking for someone to get open in front of the net, but New Jersey was such a shutdown team, man. They had everyone caught. You, you watch all our forwards and everyone battling position, and that's when you can hook and hold and grab, and every one of our guys were taken out, so I'm like, I'll try and get behind the net. And to be honest, I had seen um, uh, Dougie Gilmore the year before when he was playing for the Leafs do a move when he went behind the net. And the goalie, he was by himself. He didn't have a guy cutting him off. But he went further behind the net. Goalie went across. He stopped, came around, and put it in the open side. So I was like, wow, that's a pretty smart play. As a, a defenseman, I'm looking at it. And I'm like, if I was in front of the net, I would have gone to the other side too. And he would have stopped and come out on that side. So as I'm going, the guy that's cutting me off is a friend of mine, Billy Guerin, who is much of a friend. He abused me that whole series. <laughs> like, he was, like he was on me nonstop. Like check him, like, oh, here comes Billy again. And like, so he was angling me off. I'm like, I'm gonna try this move and see what happens. So I put my head down and went around and I remember seeing it go in and looking up and Scott Stevens is like a bull going, he's all <laughs> spitting stuff out and he's cross-checking Kovalov. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that puck just went in. I can't believe that just, that actually worked. That play actually worked. I couldn't believe it. So it's the only time I've ever done it in my life. Never did it again, never even were in that position to do it again. Well, it definitely paid off. And I know just watching you watch it, You've probably seen it so many times. What's that moment like for you just even now sitting here with us, watching yourself in such a memorable moment? I can tell you your mind, and I know this is, goes for a lot of players, it goes right to the goal that went in with 7.6 seconds left, and I was on the ice, and it bounced over my stick as I was swinging for it and ended up in our net. So my thought is if that had been the one nothing goal, Richter would have got the shutout. That would have been the big goal, but... When I see Matt Toe's career since he scored the overtime goals, I'm not so sad. Like, <laughs> it helped Matt Toe out a lot. But honestly, I, I, go, I go right to that should have been the only goal of the game. Like, Richter played so good in that game. So it goes to a mistake that I made. It wasn't really a mistake. I just swung and it bounced over my stick. And then I was down and they scored. And so that's what it goes to to be honest. It is really amazing that you can recount the play just so specifically however many years on from that point. Like, you never really ever let those, those moments go, right? You probably can retrace so many of your goals. Yeah, I think your top moments on both sides, the bad and the good, always stick out. And I wish there'd be fewer bad ones that <laughs> stuck out, but the good ones are so great. It's like when everyone went to school and you can remember... The, the anxiety about tests and like getting there but you remember all your friends and all the good times and that's how it was for for hockey and for those type of moments well you have a lot of good memories then we go on to the stanley cup final taking on the vancouver canucks and you guys went up really big in this series three games to one what was that pressure like knowing that you can close out a series and win the stanley cup when also, uh, you know, another team is still trying to be able to take it away from you? 
Well, I think we were we were very wary of uh, Vancouver because they were on a, a fairy tale run. They were a lower seed and they had beaten some good teams. And Pavel Bure was playing unbelievable. Uh, Kirk McLean as a goalie was playing unbelievable. And we came in like same as we came into the Islander series. We were scared when we went into that first Islander game because they played well against us, and they didn't have as good a regular season. We went in the same way and. Vancouver beat us in overtime when we outplayed them completely. So that second game we played in the Garden, it was not quite a game seven in our minds, but close. Like we had to win that second one. After we won that and we won the next two, we felt pretty good, you know, about where we were coming back. But they weren't easy games. Like we had, like Mark always says, you know, there's you got to have ice bags on after the game to know that you earned it. And all our guys did. And... We were banged up, and they came back and won those next two games. Those were two of the best games they played the whole series. So we didn't play we didn't play poorly in those two games. They just they had nothing to to lose. You know, they're like we're gonna not let this be easy, and they they came out and, and gave it to us. So you know, it, it set it all up for Game Seven, which was you know it was a tense time. Yeah, Kate, describe to all of us. I mean, many of us. I don't know who's all in the crowd, but I'm pretty sure not all of us have played a Game 7 Stanley Cup Final before. What are the emotions and the anxiety and just the feeling of waking up the day of Game 7 and knowing that you could win the Stanley Cup or you could lose it? I think for people that followed it, it was the one game leading up to it that we had a two-day break. So as it went every other, and so we're going West Coast, East Coast, back and so we had two days in between and it was the first time at least personally that I realized Vancouver realized how close they were to the Stanley Cup and realized that they started to get nervous about it and you saw quotes about how hard it was to beat a team three times in a row especially twice at home and they were starting to you know you could see they were like we are this 60 minutes from winning Stanley Cup and so Mark and we had veterans, Kevin Lowe and McTavish and guys that had been through it and won five Stanley Cups. And, you know, they just kept you even keeled. Whatever jokes they made on regular ones, it was still going on. And just reminding them, like, we're a good team. We just got to go out and play. It wasn't really about worrying about what they were going to do. It was about how we were going to approach it and go play. So the day of the game, you just knew you woke up and you're like, one way or the other, it's over. You know, like it's over. You're either going to be part, like I, in my mind, you know, it had been 54 years. So I'm like, you're either going to be another one of the guys that weren't able to win it, or you have this great opportunity to be on this team that does have a chance to win it. So I'm like, it was really, I made myself believe that it was a no-lose, you know? Like even though it would be a loss and it would be talked about, you just join a long list of teams that couldn't do it. But the chance to actually win that and go out and do it, so that's how I and that's how I kind when like my buddies that are coaching colleges and they ask me, you know, we're in a big game, we're in a champ. I always bring up that one. I go, well, listen, you know, you're not trying to live up to a team that's won six of the last twelve championships. You know, like there's not all these guys looking at you when you come off the ice like, oh, you let us down, or all these fans. You know, they are they are hanging with you. And they've gone through all the disappointment. Like, you could be one of the players that is on that team. 
So I, I was fine during the day and like went, went out for the game and the energy was different than game five. Game five, the energy was off the charts. Everybody there thought we were gonna win. And we're like, we're winning this thing. And uh, you know, then Vancouver went up three nothing. We came back tied at three three, then they went and scored right away. So it was up and down. So then we lost the next one. So now you can just feel like it's excitement, but there's the fans are just as nervous. You know, like they're like, don't let this happen again. Don't let this happen again. So the game starts, you know, and it was uh, you know, it was a regular hockey game to start. Well, it started well, especially for you, of course, scoring the first goal in this game. Congratulations. <laughs> Brian, just a quick question on that goal. When we watch it, it looks like you have all the time and space in the world. What did that feel like on the ice? Uh, just like that. Like I had all the time. Like I, My only mistake I could do was try and shoot it right away. So I just had to sell the puck down like... That whole play, I talked about how Mark Messi and Gretz see the ice. So as soon as I passed it up to him and Zuboff, another, he's the only guy I hadn't really mentioned, but his skill level was off the charts. Saw the game very similar to me when we were out together and four on fours and everything. It was like two people the same way, looking at the same plays. So when we were out there together, I think the change had just happened and Zuby jumped on. And I had given up side, so I'm going, and I know Mark's left hand, he's going to cut back. So you can see him look at me, and uh, there's a guy kind of coming into view, and Mark's so smart, he, instead of giving it to me, he goes back to Zuby. And now if it wasn't Zuboff, like if it was any other defenseman, I would have stopped right there and just gone back. I'm like, Zuby's either going to shoot or he's going to pass it if I'm open. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, just stay in this area and see what happens. And he should have shot. He had one of the best shots on the team. But he saw Gravy in front. He had a goalie screen. McLean had to go across the ice. So he gave it to me and was just like, yeah, Leach, you hit the open net. <laughs> you didn't do it. <laughs> so I was like, I just settle it down and, uh, and put it in the net. So... Once it went in, it's just one of those, oh, that first goal is so important. Right, takes the pressure off, sort of lets you settle into the game, open things up, and you win the Stanley Cup. What was that like? How can you describe that for us, someone like me or anyone else in this room who's never won a Stanley Cup before? Every emotion that you can have all in a short time. I mean, there's a lot of relief, actually. You know, you think it's all these, but there was a lot of relief that uh, you've put in a lot of effort for the year, for the playoffs, and you ended up on the, the, the end of the goal. And uh, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stress and stuff that comes off of you that you don't even realize you have, just kind of goes away. And then you're excited, and then you see players on your team excited, and guys that didn't play a lot, and guys that played a lot, and you know how important each one was, and then the trainers, and you're going through and as you're looking around you see all the people that have gone from generation to generation and passing and that's when I just kind of went to awe and like I was looking around I go this is so great for so many people and I've been only here for five years six years and all these people have been hoping for this moment for so long and you're in Madison Square Garden so it's like 
all going through like in a rush and then someone takes a mic and throws it in front of your face and you're like, yeah, you gotta try and explain it and then you're excited and, and so there's like so many things going on all in such a short time. That's uh, amazing. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a blur, but I just remember all those mixed emotions and most of them positive, but uh, a lot of great, great memories. And I, I'm sure many great memories for people in this room here that, that experienced probably the highs and lows in a different realm than you did, but are very thankful for what you brought to them and to this city. So our questions that we have from the audience, thank you very much for everyone who submitted them. First question, which I really wanted to get to this. What was the first thing you did after winning the Stanley Cup? <laughs> I mean, are we going immediately to throwing your gloves and sticks in the air? Like, oh, and that's a good story, too, because we thought we had won it that one second before where they called the icing. And so I threw my stick and gloves up, and another guy did. And I remember hugging Richter, and he's like, Leachy, we did it. And I'm like, where is, every, where is everybody jumping on top of me? Like, I should be a mob pit right now. And the crowd was murmuring. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, my gosh, how could you be embarrassed with one second left? And, you know, like, so I picked my gloves up and everything. But after that, you know, you go, you go through the interviews and everything else. And then we had a get-together in the arena with all the family and friends and sponsors and the only thing we did outside the uh, arena was we went to a friend of ours' uh, little bar that we had always gone to, and they had closed the street down, had the police there, but I remember being in it and picture, you know, 10 times the amount of people in here in a smaller venue, and I was so tired and worn out, and I just looked at my family and friends, and I said, I'm going to bed. And they're like, what do you mean you're going to bed? And I go, honestly, I have to go to I gotta go get some sleep. <laughs> So I did, I went back, I went back by myself and I got into the uh, bed and I went to sleep. I slept hard for like 10, 12 hours. And then I got up like it was Christmas morning, never slept again for two weeks. But, uh, <laughs> but that first night I was just like the mental and physical drain of going through that and just being able to enjoy it in those settings where I'm like, I just need a break and to go recoup. Um, so that was kind of my first night afterwards. And before you had that celebration, you got a very special call from former President Bill Clinton. When you watch that now and you see, wow, you know, a president called me, I won the Stanley Cup. What's that feeling like? Well, I haven't actually watched it, but I, it was just, it was ridiculous. It was so embarrassing. Like, yeah, there's all, you know, they have this huge press tent area set up away and underneath. So everybody's lined up and... Now you're on a call that's heard by everybody. It's not just like you're like, yeah, what's that? Oh, yeah, thanks, buddy. You know, it's not one of those. Everybody's listening, so anything you say is going to be heard. And so it was, you know, it was just one that I was like, what, what am I doing here? But like you try and get through it. And when you look back, you're like, that's kind of what New York City brings to that moment. If there was another team that won there, the president wouldn't have been calling. Maybe the prime minister would have called in Vancouver. <laughs> yeah. Well, we but wouldn't know because they the haven't US, won. <laughs> you know, the president wouldn't have called another. It's New York City, all the media, 54 years. It was a PR moment for him mm -hmm. to jump into. Right. So then just with the Stanley Cup, what did you do with it? Like, we hear so many stories of guys having a crazy time with the cup. What's yours? 
we were the last team that had no keeper of the cup. So it just went wherever we went and moved around. And, you know, I never really had a, a uh, special day with it. You know, everybody's got it all mapped out now. But I was with it every day for the first couple of weeks, you know, and the cup has, at that time, had no curfew. You know, the cup goes all night, and you can't you can't go all night. So, uh, at different times, it ended up at different places. And like my myself, Mark Messier, Richter, we were and Graves. There were a few of the guys that had to do some of these shows. You know, like the morning show, Howard Stern, and Good Morning America, and this and that. So on top of trying to have fun at night. Uh, you know, you're getting picked up at 5.30 in the morning, and you're like, oh, 5.30. And then, you know, we didn't all have the cell phones, and so they're like, do you don't have the cup? And I was like, no, I don't have the cup. <laughs> and I had a few buddies from college staying over, so I'd call, and I'd try and wake them up on the answer machine. And so for one of the days, one of my buddies had to bring the cup down to the Charlie Rose show that Richter and I were doing. And so he, he's a great storyteller. I wish he was here right now to tell you. But he walked down to the lobby of my building. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll bring it down. Tell me the address. So he was sitting in, you know, the kitchen. And he brings it down in the lobby. And the doorman's like, wow, is that, that's really it? And he's like, yeah, that's it. He goes, do you want, you want me to grab a cab? And he goes, no, I'll go, I'll go get one. So he goes out, and now all the people on the street are starting like, is that right? And so he comes back in, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think. So they went in the back to like where the package room and the deliveries are, and they grabbed a tarp, and they threw it around it. And then he went out and got a taxi. So they saw my buddy coming out with his hands like this, with the tarp wrapped around it, and popped the trunk out. And he goes, no, 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 no. This is going in uh, the back seat with me. <laughs> So then he sits in the back seat with it, you know, and the tarp slides down, and he's got a big grin on his face. And my buddy and the, the driver's like, real? He's like, mm-hmm, real. <laughs> he's telling him. So he brought him down. But, like, stories like that, the cup having to get to all these events when they're sitting in someone's apartment and they can't go anywhere. But after that year, you know, like, it went through so many places, and everybody had it over their heads and they find like we can't leave this thing out on its own so after that at 95 they came 94 95 they started having someone followed around right. after that it's amazing it's still in one piece that it's been yeah there, well it falls were. apart and they fix it and <laughs> you know yeah. it's actually simply built it's a big screw down the middle with a wing nut on the bottom <laughs> so so when you keep picking it up it slowly was unloosening and you could see the sag and you know, like, this isn't good, and there's no way to get in until it falls off. And now you're like, how do we get this thing back on? And it's crazy. Great insight. We'd never know that, so appreciate it. So how did you feel about being traded to Toronto, and did you like it? Well, I, I'm not going to get into too much about the trade, except that I was very disappointed. Um, but Toronto was a great experience. I was... Uh, you know, that is, as you know, it's a hockey city. It's a little bit like being a New York Yankee, I'd say, in New York. Um, but a little more so because the city's not quite as big, but hockey is the focal point. But the first day that I went and stayed in a hotel, and I stayed in one different than where the 
the, pop, the, the press thought I was going to be staying, so I had people help me just find a spot to uh, go stay. But just walking down the street, you know, I had a winter cap on and jacket, and they're like, welcome to Toronto, Mr. Leach, welcome to Toronto, you know, and just kept going. Um, so the, that atmosphere was, was, was really fun to be a part of, and we had a good team. I had a honeymoon period because ex-players were in the media. Nick Kiprios, Glenn Healy, Neil Smith were all doing media in there. So I'd have a, I'd have a bad game. They wouldn't really bring it up. They'd talk about someone else. <laughs> I had a good game. That's all they talked about. <laughs> so, but the whole experience, and I was just as disappointed in losing the second round then as I was losing as a Ranger player. Like, the team was that good. The people treated you that good, just like the Rangers organization. And... Um, very positive experience. If we hadn't had a lockout the next year, I had another year on my contract. I was looking forward to going back there and playing another year. Who's the toughest opponent you've ever faced, player or team? Well, I'd say trying to play him as a defenseman, Mario Lemieux was mm -hmm. the toughest. And then having to line up against him, you know, as a winger that was coming in my corner all the time is Rick Tockett. Mm. Who's one player you wished you could have played with on the same team? Geez, I don't know if I named all the players that came through New York and I played with. I pretty much have yeah. like 15 of the top 20 <laughs> scores in the NHL that came pretty through incredible. the Rangers and the U.S. teams. So I've been, I've been very fortunate. Like there's, there's so many good players, and I've been a part of most of them. It's very lucky. Well, that's good. Not many people would also answer. They've already done that. <laughs> Okay, who's the most influential coach you've had at any stage of your career, from grade school to the pros? Well, I, I, the most influential person, and he was assistant coach on my teams when I was young, was my dad, uh, no question. And then, which I'm very fortunate. And, and my mom was just as important in my life. And then when I became a professional, Mark Messier came to the team. There's no question he was the most in, influential person in my professional career. And outside of hockey, or potentially, actually, this would be inside of hockey, uh, what athlete did you model your game after? Jeez, I didn't, I never really modeled it after anyone, but I had players that I looked up to, or from different sports, like I loved John McEnroe. I was a player, he's complete opposite of me. <laughs> <laughs> like, loud, yeah. and so I, I loved watching that mindset that you could disrupt a whole game like that and everything that would have thrown me off completely <laughs> and he was still able to play so well and so I got to meet him and everything but when when I was getting drafted I remember saying like that's well who do you wish you were if you were an NHL player to play like and I said Mark Howe because I got to see him a little bit mm -hmm. in Connecticut when he was with the Whalers he wore number two which I was wearing and it was just a player that I enjoyed watching mm -hmm. Now, what's maybe one quote or one personal advice that you received that sort of carried you through your career and your life? I've never been a person that uh, one, one thing. It's a day-to-day -day process. I mean, and some days you think you know it all, and the next day you run into something and realize you have a lot to learn, and there's other ways to go about it. And I think that's the beauty of being around a lot of influential people and a lot of people. I've, I'm lucky that hockey's 
brought me into contact with a lot of people that have been succe successful in other fields too and had different ways of looking at things. And I think all that goes into your growth as a person. So to go from 19 years old to you know, 36 in New York was a great experience. It's a very humble mindset too, really, like keeping grinding, finding another way, mm -hmm. a solution to a problem, mm -hmm. which we can use in all of our daily lives and all of our, our jobs and ventures. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time here tonight. We really appreciate your thank stories. You. Thanks for listening to the Thusio Live and Unfiltered podcast with our guest, Brian Leach. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like more information how you can attend our live events or book our new virtual ones, visit www.thusio.com. That's T-H-U-Z-I-O.com. And make sure you follow us on social media at Thusio.